Good morning, Miss Yo. Uh, it's a real privilege to stand before you here and uh, to bring the Word of God to you. Almost didn't make it. I my van got stuck. I couldn't even get out of the garage this morning. I was thinking I may not even preach, but um, Matt came and rescued me, so I appreciate that. Yeah, so we're going to be in Colossians one nine, and and on. So let's go to the Lord in prayer together before we begin. Father, thank you for this day and for bringing us here, watching over us and keeping us safe. We thank you for your word that you've given to us that we might know you, know what you expect of us and want for us, and know what you have done for us. Help us, Lord, to attend to your word Pray, Lord, for me that uh, you would give me clarity of mind and directness. And I pray for the people, Lord, that you would uh, help them and give them a single focus upon, upon your message this morning. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given us all things. And it's in his name we always pray. Amen. Well, when we were together last time, we launched our study of Colossians, uh, specifically emphasizing the way Paul begins his letter with thanksgiving to God. Thankfulness is the undergirding factor in verses 3 through 8. Everything that has happened to the Colossians, their, their faith in Christ, their love for one another, and, and all of that because of the hope of the gospel that came to them in power, these are calls for great thanksgiving to God the Father. So thanksgiving is the key to Paul's ministry to the Colossians in their particular need. Even with the presence of a false teacher that we talked about and a strange new philosophy that they're trying to deal with, Paul goes straight to thanksgiving for all the Father is doing among them. So God's sovereign grace produces humble thanksgiving. And Paul can't really help but be humble. He has no choice, remember. Remember that he is... uh, been sidelined as he writes this letter. He's been put away in house arrest. He's had only a tangential part in planting the Colossian church. It was actually his three-year ministry in Ephesus that equipped Epaphras to go back to Colossae with the gospel. But no matter his circumstance, Paul is overjoyed that that the gospel has gotten a foothold in a faraway place. So Thanksgiving is in order. God has done it. This morning we pick up in verse 9 where Paul transitions from thanksgiving for the Colossian believers to all-out prayer on their behalf. So if in verses 3 through 8 Paul thanks God for their justification, we're now going to see in verses 9 through 14 Paul's prayer for their sanctification, their conformity to Christ. In these verses, Paul prays that the Colossians may know God's will so that they can walk worthy of the Lord. A very high calling, indeed, for the Christian. Uh, You and I are no different from these Colossian believers, by the way. We, too, need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that we might walk worthy of Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. This morning, we're going to take a close look at this text and discover together just what Paul means by walking worthy. What does this mean? 
with the goal of reorienting our lives around that single purpose of walking worthy. And let me just say, this is probably one of the most personally convicting sermons I've ever preached. And if it seems hard-hitting to you, just know that it's been kicking me around the house for the better part of a month. And uh, I've been wrestling with this text for a long time now. And it's your turn. Okay? So in verse 9, Paul begins his prayer with the short phrase, for this reason. Well, for what reason? What, what does Paul refer to here as the cause for his unceasing prayer? We see back at the end of verse 8 that Epaphras has told Paul all about the Colossians' love in the Spirit. Their love in the context of life together in the church is probably the greatest evidence and testimony uh, of their conversion to Christ. And so Paul is now praying that that love will lead on to greater maturity. See, Paul knows that if the conversion of the Colossians is of God, so must their maturity and perseverance be. The Father grants faith through the preaching of the gospel, and it is he who keeps believers by faith, so that in the end, the whole enterprise will have been all of God. Now, I want us to be careful, though. I don't mean to say that believers are completely passive in their spiritual growth. We know this isn't the case. The scriptures command us to take responsibility for our maturity. In his letter to the church at Philippi in chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And beloved, that is not passivity. The church isn't called to sit back and merely enjoy the ride. Christianity is not a hayride, right? But then Paul says something extremely important to them. He says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in all this, what I really mean to say is that God is the source, the, the cause or the root of all the power needed to live the Christian life. In the end, he will receive all the glory for having sanctified us and for having kept us by his grace. So knowing that, Paul prays specifically that God will continue in the Colossians what he has begun in them. You know, this is an important lesson for us. The the work of prayer is not done when uh, someone comes and has been converted and baptized. In other words, we don't stop praying for someone now that they've come to Christ. We continue to plead with God to be in the middle of their sanctification. So the work of the prayer, the work of prayer for the sheep continues. This means interceding on behalf of the flock with the same urgency as that call to thanksgiving that we, we talked about last time. Now let me ask you, who are you praying for right now for their spiritual growth? Whose new faith are you asking the Father to, to nurture and to build up? Keep praying for that person. Don't give up. You may personally never see the fruits of it. But if you don't know how to, who to pray for, by the way, find out, here's an idea, find out the names of those who were most recently baptized and begin to pray for them and pray for their spiritual growth. Pray this passage over them 
you know, too often our our typical first inclination is not to pray for new believers, but to get them busy. Discipling them by keeping them as occupied as possible with church stuff. Making sure they attend this and that function until they're so immersed in church culture that they start equating obedience with attendance. And I, you know, obviously this is not the way of the apostles. Paul's first strategy is to pray for them, asking God to do what only he can so that he gets all the glory, right? Well, we need to ask what exactly is it that Paul is praying for, and this really gets into the meat of the prayer itself. What is he constantly asking from the Father? Look with me in the middle of verse 9. He says, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, even though the verb here, the verb form is passive, that you may be filled, truth is we have a responsibility to seek to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And by the way, if we're wondering what that will is, it really is no mystery. Paul spends the rest of the letter from chapter 2 on telling us and explaining to us what God's will is for our lives. It's not really a mystery. He doesn't leave us hanging. Listen, God longs for his children to be filled with the knowledge of his will. And it is a dynamic filling, like an ever-driving wind in the sail of a ship. New believers especially need to be filled with this knowledge. And, and this is not only knowledge of the word of God, although that is absolutely crucial, but it is a flourishing wisdom that comes from consistently obeying what that word says. Knowing the scriptures is only half the battle. There are plenty of lifeless people who know the Bible, but they lack obedience to it. So obedience and knowledge work together in us both to know and to do God's will. Uh, D.A. Carson, who's becoming one of my favorite authors, he writes about this very passage in Colossians in his book, A Call to Spiritual Reformation, he says this. It's kind of lengthy, so bear with me. He says, as you get busy in the business of obedience, you get to know God better. That in turn impels you to more obedience, which in turn opens up new vistas in, in the knowledge of God and his will. Of course, as your knowledge of God and his will improves, you are driven to greater obedience. Such obedience is one point of access to greater knowledge of God, and on and on and on. See, our justification, our, our being made right with God is a one-time event. But our sanctification, our growth and maturity is a lifelong process. Maturity doesn't come overnight. It has to be cultivated over time. Now, we are responsible for our, and this is tricky. We are responsible for our sanctification. But you know what? We cannot do it apart from the knowledge of God's will and apart from Him. Well, great. We need to also ask what is the purpose of being filled with the knowledge of God's will? Paul says in verse 10, and please look with me there, in verse 10, he says, 
Why? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. A key part of life in Christ is knowing the will of God and conforming your daily life to that will so that you might walk following Jesus and loving, faithful obedience to all that he has said. It is the highest of callings, by the way, to work to walk worthy of him. It means nothing less than walking as Jesus walked, by faith, loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and body. But think with me for a moment. Think about Jesus himself. You know, he knew, if you read the Gospels, one thing is, is very evident, very quickly evident, is that he knew the Heavenly Father intimately, And he knew what pleased God. And armed with that knowledge, he walked. His face was set like a stone to to glorify God and to beautify his commandments by obedience. Jesus knew God's will. He had all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And therefore, he was empowered to walk in a manner worthy of his Father. And in the same way, we are called to walk worthy of Christ. And our walk demands the same wisdom and understanding, but at depths to which we ourselves cannot attain unless God fills us. We need to be praying this prayer for ourselves and for one another. To literally ask the Father to fill us in such a way that that knowledge practically controls us on a daily basis. And as it turns out, hey, you're going to see that prayer answered in surprisingly beautiful ways over time because that is the very thing the Father has set out to do in the, in the lives of his believers, of his children, anyway. See, Paul's prayer itself is in line with God's will. He's asking the Father to do what he already longs to do for us and for the Colossians. So let me re-emphasize this or re-ask this. Christian, believer, saint, do you know that God wants you to know his will? Now, I'm not necessarily talking about whether it's God's will for you to buy that truck or to buy the house. These things are very important. And God is in the mix with us in those things. But I'm talking about walking with Christ and walking worthy of him, knowing his will, what he expects of us, what he wants for us, so that we might walk following Christ in loving obedience. See, he loves his son. The father loves his son to infinite capacity. And he longs for you to know his will that so you can walk as Jesus walked. And that's the highest honor that God grants to his people. Think about this, guys. We get to walk as Jesus walked. Which includes suffering as he suffered. That is our privilege as sons and daughters of God. And the Father wants to fill us with the knowledge of his will so we can do just that. So this sounds hard-hitting, but actually it's good news. We get to do this. This is his grace. So I'm compelled to ask you this morning, how is your walk? Are you being more and more motivated by the word of God? 
In other words, do you walk according to what the Word of God says? It is no, uh, it is no coincidence that the psalmist prays this in Psalm 119. He says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Folks, God's word is for walking in a dark world. How do you know you're walking according to the word? Well, one way to tell is to ask whether it is costing you anything to do so. Uh, Beloved, I'm not talking about having more or longer quiet times. This is about making God's word the foundation of your life, such that you not only read it, but it becomes your north star, and you navigate your daily life by what it tells you to do. This is what Christ expects us to do. Well, at some point, the boots must hit the ground. We have to know what walking worthy is going to look like from a biblical perspective. And Paul does not leave us hanging. Look with me again, beginning in verse 10. Now, Paul prays for four specific things, four examples of walking worthy, which are first, bearing fruit in every good work. Second, increasing in the knowledge of God. Third, verse 11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And fourth, verse 12, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Four simple participles, bearing fruit, increasing, being strengthened, joyously giving thanks, Four important markers of walking worthy, and we're going to briefly tackle each one of these in their turn, okay? First, bearing fruit in every good work. Now, Christianity without good works is actually unbelief. Most of us are well-versed in the, in the importance of good works, hospitality, uh, charity, service, compassion, love for the brethren, love for our enemies, which we're learning about in Luke These are the inclinations of a life filled with the Spirit. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says that God has prepared good works for his children to do. Many of you know this verse. It says, For we are his, or God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And there is that word again, walk. See, all along our life path, our, our walk, God has, has ordained many good works for us to do. Works that are waiting for their time and place. Works that will bear fruit for the gospel. Uh, many works, the power to accomplish, we won't even have until we need it. Walking worthy bears the fruit of works precisely because God has put those works on the path we walk. In other words, Walking worthy without bearing fruit is impossible. So Paul prays here that the Colossians will bear fruit that glorifies God. The point is this. We are to live in love and to let that love translate into the most, even the most mundane areas of life. We love God 
by being honest in our taxes. We love him by praying for a wayward child. We love our parents by obeying them, showing up for work on time. Even the most mundane things, these are good works. And so I'm compelled to ask, is your Christianity marked by good works? Um, when was the last time you denied yourself and served someone or loved someone in a gospel context at inconvenience to yourself? Maybe another way to ask it is, are you routinely discovering good works strewn along as you walk? If so, these are gifts of God that he has set there for you to do for his glory. Even those things you don't think are good works. But if not, if the works are not there, your walk may not be Christian at all. Beloved, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm asking the question that is automatically generated in a passage like this. A life that walks worthy will be marked by many good works, lifelong. Second, in verse 10, verse 10, we find that another aspect of walking worthy is increasing in the knowledge of God. That participle there, increasing, obviously indicates a continual action in the same way that bearing fruit does. Now, it might strike us as a little odd that Paul should pray that the Colossians will be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they will increase in knowledge. It seems a little redundant. Knowledge so that knowledge. But the redundancy is... uh, purposeful. It's intentional. Simply put, Paul is is saying what you think he's saying. He's saying that being filled with the knowledge of God leads to an increase in the knowledge of God. It's a double emphasis there. Some of us have sat under solid expositional preaching for years, and we may be tempted to think that we've heard it all now and become stagnant in our personal study. But the participle increasing is all important. It is lifelong, never stopping, constant growth in the knowledge of God and his word. Now, if you're not increasing in the knowledge of God, you're not just standing still, you're actually retreating, decreasing, even dying. The same holds true if you are increasing in the wrong kind of knowledge, doctrinal error, bad theology, going after false teachers who are everywhere. There is no standing still on the path. Neutrality, inaction, apathy, these are faith killers. And and clinging to bad, unhealthy doctrine and theology will deafen you to Christ's word until eventually your entire life's road will have been paved with lies. Where are you going to go from there? What are, some, what are some practical ways to increase your knowledge of God? Well, the, the answer really isn't anything new. We have to spend time in the Word every day. I dare say that some of us might just need to stop using printed devotional materials and start opening our Bibles. That's a hard one for some. I understand that but to go to the source itself. 
Some some of us can be more proactive in in our sermon listening by taking notes as we listen and and then discussing what was preached with others in your community group. And that being said, another thing you can do is to join a community group which will help ground you in God's word as you live life together. Those are just some practical ways. There are a lot of ways to do this. But the goal is to constantly be in interaction with the scriptures. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes is he said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. We need to do that. Now, I know that that reading is difficult for some. And I'm, when I say this, know that I'm not talking about talking to those with a learning disability who have severe dyslexia or something like that. Those are real issues. I understand that. Uh, but it is difficult for some in that it's not that you can't read. You're just not much of a reader. You don't like to do it. I hear this quite a bit. Uh, interestingly, I almost never hear it from, from the ladies. It's always from the guys. Oh, I'm just not a reader, man. You know, it's it's guys. I don't know why. The the apostles would would scratch their heads over this and probably tell you to get over it. I would submit that it is our culture that teaches us to be passive listeners rather than actively engaged readers. Just consider that your aversion to reading just might be an area in which you need to die to yourself and learn a new discipline. The time is now more than ever to increase, to begin that journey. So walking worthy looks like bearing fruit in good works and increasing in the knowledge of God. But third, it also looks like walking in the power of God. Power, Paul says, that is according to his glorious might. And I love the Greek word there, kratos. Doesn't mean anything to you. I know that, but it just sounds like might, strength. Obviously, this is much more than the strength of the mind and body. All those, those two are gifts of God. This is not about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Paul is talking about the power of a completely different kind here. But I want you to think with me for a moment. The Colossians apparently already have so much going for them. If we're thinking pragmatically, they have faith in Christ. They have love for all the saints. They have a godly pastor who is leading them and teaching them. They have the gospel, the scriptures. They have each other. They have their their fellowship. They probably have their favorite worship songs by this point. They have their various spiritual gifts, and the list could go on. Does this sound familiar? Missio, do we not have so much going for us right now? But think about this with me. Why should the Colossians need God's power when they already have so much going for them? We don't think about God's power and the need for it when things are going well. We find the answer to this, though, at the end of verse 11. 11, look with me there. Paul says the Colossians need power for all steadfastness and patience. See, for all their gifts and strengths, for all their faith, love, and leadership, for all their spiritual and even numerical growth, 
These believers live in a pagan environment that is increasingly hostile to their message. Does that sound familiar? The cross is still offensive to the world. And a time is coming for the Colossians when their good works and their knowledge are going to be put to the test. And when that happens, they will need God's strength, not their pragmatism. They're going to need God's might, his inexhaustible power. Well, let's say for the sake of argument that we have everything going for us here. Our good works and our knowledge of God are both healthy and active, growing in abundance. All things being equal, we are thriving. And then comes real persecution or affliction. When persecution arrives, our first temptation will be to let go of the the momentum we have worked so hard to build together, to let go of our good works or to compromise our doctrine, whatever is getting us into the most trouble with the world at the time. And in that critical moment, we're going to need steadfastness and patience so that we will still walk worthy of the Lord. Now, we will have the strength that we need when we need it. Of course, God has promised that to those who obey him. But we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't even know what the rest of this day is going to bring. Affliction, suffering, these things uh, stretch us and they break us so that we can be built back up into obedient obedient servants. God calls us to obey and blesses us as we learn to do so. But Matt Henry reminded me, we should be careful of our tendency to, to demand that God bless us and then obey it in accordance with how well we think he did. God's power is for perseverance, plain and simple. So show me a man or woman who thinks they can endure to the end, and I'll show you a fool. Marshal all your personal power, your inner fortitude, your pragmatism when the testing comes. Gather up your strength, almighty man, when persecution begins. See how long you last. Guys, in my own flesh, I can't even endure a single day of peace without messing up, without failing the Lord, let alone a day of persecution. How long could I possibly persevere under affliction in my own strength, which is nothing but the flesh? So persecution or suffering reveals the source of our strength. If we've been walking in our own power, suffering will quickly lay it bare. But if we're already operating in reliance upon God's mighty strength, no amount of affliction that Satan brings our way will be able to quench that flame. I think it's that simple. I fear, guys, that in the next few years, many churches are going to fold under the weight of their self-reliance. Churches I've been a part of, even. For all steadfastness and patience, Missio needs God's power right now, more than ever. Even when things are going so well. We're moving into a new church today. We'll have our first service there next week. I am pumped, and we should be pumped. But churches must repent of their own power and gifts and pride and people-pleasing and pragmatism and bootstrapping. We must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift us up in his time. 
Here's the rub. The, the, the power that Paul is talking about is not going to bring us wealth or prosperity, advantage, favor, opportunity, and ultimately self-liberation. Truth is, Paul always experienced God's power through his own weakness. That is a biblical fact. Paul was weak, burdened, often isolated. The normal Christian life is one in which we are routinely burdened beyond our strength in our fight against personal sin and our in our love and service to others and in the battle that is ministry. You know, in his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul describes a very difficult time that he and his team had in Asia. He says this, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Wow. See, nothing in this passage shouts accomplishment or achievement. We will be strengthened with God's power precisely at the point where we are burdened beyond our strength. We don't like that. I don't like that. My flesh resists that. But I wonder if we should just stop trying and worrying about our weaknesses all the time. Stop trying to fix ourselves and begin to look for God's power on a constant basis. And how? By being controlled by his implanted word. We definitely should be glad about all that God is doing with us here. We are growing. We are evangelizing. We have a new church building, as I said. We love one another. Our worship is strong. Our preaching is expository. We have an excellent godly pastor to lead us. And we cannot be mesmerized by any of it. Rather, we have to continue to clothe ourselves in the weakness of the cross and rely on God who raises the dead. Again, how do we go about doing that? When affliction comes, what is going to control our response to it? When we're persecuted, what what will we lean on? Our new building? See, just knowing the truth will not do. For all steadfastness and patience, we need to learn to preach the truth to ourselves and to one another, to repeat to ourselves the promises of God and to pray those promises for one another and to repeat them to one another, to take the living, active word of God and preach it into our lives and for one another and, and to pray this. Constant interaction with God's word. Finally, Paul prays these words in verse 12 of Colossians, chapter 1, back in Colossians now. Verse 12, Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And here we've come full circle, by the way, in Paul's prayer, where he began in verse 3 with thanksgiving, he now returns to it, placing it alongside good works, knowledge, and power as a signal aspect of the Christian life. Thanksgiving. 
And this is the kind of thankfulness that, that most pleases the Lord. Why? Because it is joyful. It is delighted. Freely offering up to God the thanksgiving due to him. You know, joyful thanksgiving has the ability to admire the beauty of all that God has done. Begrudging thanksgiving, thanksgiving out of legalism, misses all that. But we can see the beauty of what God is doing, and we're more than pleased to offer our praise and glory to him. Now, as we said last time, this is not just a general thankfulness or a spirit of gratitude, which, by the way, are fine in themselves. It's good to be very positive and a grateful person. But this is specifically thankfulness to God the Father, who has begun something incredible in Colossa. Through the preaching of the gospel, there are now saints in that city, holy ones who have been qualified for an inheritance that cannot be taken away. And the saints in Colossae now share this inheritance with all the saints of every time and place, with all those who have been brought to the light. So thanksgiving is an order, giving thanks as a way of walking worthy. Paul also writes about this inheritance in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. And why don't you, if you would, turn with me there. Ephesians chapter 1. Just go left past Philippians, and you'll hit Ephesians. Just two books over. Chapter 1, verse 11. While you're turning there, I've got to get some water. Paul writes this. He says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter to the exiles, writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Guys, listen, we are, by the grace of God, a bunch of trust fund babies. You ever think of that? Waiting until we come into our full inheritance, an inheritance that is already ours in Christ Jesus, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit within us. So Paul is praying, back in Colossians, Paul is praying that as they bear fruit in good works, as they increase in knowledge, and as they walk in the power of God, the Colossians will also walk in joyful thanksgiving to the one who's done it all. So yes, their life is hard, Persecution is around them. They are hated by the world, but they are rich, full, overflowing with all that God has done for them. Thanksgiving is joyful remembrance of what God has done, and it is celebration of what he is doing right now. 
So when their strength is put to the test, these Colossians will need to remember and they'll need to celebrate even when they are persecuted, joyously giving thanks to the Father. This is a way of walking worthy. Now, we should ask the question, why does all this matter? All this bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, being strengthened, walking in... Is this just a new list of things we have to do to prove ourselves to God? To each other? Why seek these things? Why look for and encourage them in one another? Or even more to the point, why walk worthy? Because God is up there in heaven ready to strike us down if we don't? No. Come on, that's Greek mythology. That's Zeus, right? Is God like Deputy Dog? Some of you are old enough to remember that old Hanna-Barbera cartoon called Deputy Dog. I used to watch it every Saturday morning. Anytime the bad guy would step out of line, Deputy Dog would whap him on the head with something, and he'd say something like, be good. That was his line. Be good. Is God Deputy Dog? Is this just a new list? If everything I've said so far is just so much behavior modification, then forget the whole thing. No, we need to ask the question, why walk worthy? We, we can't just stop here. It'll look like a list of legalistic requirements. We don't need that. Verse 13 answers the question for us. Look with me there. We're back in Colossians now. Verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, something has happened. God has done something. Believers are living in a new reality. To be specific, a kingdom reality. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't speak openly about the kingdom very much. And so we ought to pay attention when he actually does. These are the traits we pray for in each other because they are the very traits of the kingdom itself. Good works, knowledge, divine power, joyful thanksgiving. These are kingdom realities that every saint is meant to enjoy. So being in the kingdom of Christ always, always brings about these realities in your life. And by the way, it should go without saying that these things don't happen in the realm of darkness. That is a domain of spiritual sterility, ignorance of God, weakness ending in death, and joyless ingratitude. That's not what we've been, we've been born into. Hey, Christian, uh, you were in that darkness. Under the authority and dominion of the devil, you were helpless. There was no spiritual light in your life. The Bible says that the God of this world had blinded you to the things of God. You had no hope. You were separated from Christ, left out of the promises of God, alienated from your maker. You were a rebel and a hater of God. It doesn't matter how nice you were about it. You were a natural-born citizen of Satan's kingdom. The things of God were repugnant to you, and your brightest prospect was an eternal hell under God's righteous judgment. This is the inheritance of everyone who's in the darkness. You know this to be true because you were there. 
And please note that nowhere does Paul say anything about the Colossians rescuing themselves. No, the gospel came to them. Out of the blue, they weren't expecting it. They they didn't wake up one day and, hey, today's the day that that guy's going to bring the gospel. They didn't even know this was coming. Through his preaching, the Holy Spirit gave life to the people of Colossae. Through Epaphras' preaching, those who were awakened spiritually heard the kingdom call with spiritual ears, and they believed with renewed minds and repented with softened hearts. All of these were gifts of God. They were baptized, they formed a church, and now they love each other, whereas before they probably hated one another. They had no reason to love one another. Now they're part of a kingdom that can't be shaken, a kingdom of light where the pursuit of God's will and glory in all things is the supreme objective, and this is all the purpose and doing of God. Can you see the initiative that God took in their conversion? Good. Because that means you can see the initiative God took in your conversion. It bothers me so much when people talk about how they got saved by praying a little sinner's prayer or that they walked an aisle during an evangelistic crusade or signed a pledge card. Do yourself a favor and, and, and look beyond those things already. See, God saved you in spite of what you did in spite of those things, not because of them. After all, is your, is your thanksgiving bound up in the fact that you prayed a sinner's prayer? Is your joy really attached to your walking an aisle all those years ago? I beg you to let go of that and turn your thankfulness to God who took all the initiative in coming to you with the gospel, who gave, who gave you spiritual ears to hear and gave you a heart of flesh soft enough that the gospel message wouldn't bounce right off. He did that because he's loving and gracious and kind and powerful. It was the kindness of God that led you to repentance. And it's time for joyful thanksgiving right in the middle of a pandemic and in all sorts of social and political upheaval. So each of us has a share now in this light where there's redemption, forgiveness, and love, where, where, where Christ Jesus is our King, and His good works and knowledge and power and thankfulness are on display through us for a dying world to see and for the Father to enjoy in us for the sake of the Son He loves. That's why we walk worthy. Are these, uh, are these kingdom realities present in your own life? What is the cry of your heart for the believers around you, especially for those who are new to the faith? What about for your spouse and for your children? Missio, could we really walk this way together? We're no different, really, from our ancient brothers and sisters in Colossae. Each of us was saved in pretty much the same way. We heard the gospel, repented and believed, and here we are right now together. And there's no reason in the world we should be doing this apart from one another. So can we pray like this for one another, asking God to fill us with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might walk together 
in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, you have done all things well. And because you are gracious and kind, we have an inheritance that cannot fade or be revoked. And what is that inheritance but an eternity with you? For you are the gospel. You've come to us with the promise of yourself through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So fill us, O Lord, with the knowledge of your will that we might walk in a manner worthy of you, in a manner that knows Jesus, that honors Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, bearing fruit, increasing in knowledge, strengthened by your power, joyously giving thanks. All these you have called us to do together. And this is the cry of our hearts. Amen.